Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Criminal Mischief with Carolyn and Brandon. You're listening to episode 70, Scorned. Mo once said, if we're not willing to risk catastrophic failure, we're probably not dreaming, living, or loving the right way. That is profound. That is powerful. That is Mo. She was not afraid to break things to make them better. Anna Mariah Wilson, or Mo, as she was called, grew up in Eastburg, Vermont, about 45 minutes from the Canadian border, an ideal place to raise a family, especially if you enjoy the outdoors, as was the case with the Wilson family. As a little girl, Mo loved bike riding with her family at the nearby Kingdom Trails, an oasis, more than 100 miles of trails to explore on a mountain bike. In his younger days, Mo's father was a professional ski racer. He was on the U.S. ski team and was a hair away from making it to the Olympics. Later, he would become a celebrated coach. And Mo, when she was little, was a chip off the old block. She dreamed of being an Olympic skier and had great success skiing for Dartmouth while she pursued a degree in engineering. When Mo tore her ACL for a second time, bike riding helped her through those injuries. And after college, Mo decided to pursue cycling competitively. Her years of training and building mental toughness as a skier would really serve her well as she transitioned into gravel cycling in 2019. And it was pretty clear from her very first competitive race that she was really, really good with the potential to be great. Gravel cycling is tough, physically and mentally. Instead of racing on smooth streets, you're riding over 100 miles out in the country for hours and hours, grinding over gravel roads and other really tough off-road conditions which includes crossing calf-high streams and riding up mountains. It's funny because at the point in the race where others would slow down because it was just so difficult, that's when Mariah would dig in, wearing her signature optimistic and determined smile. She was able to find a space within herself to not only endure the pain, but overcome it, channeling everything she had into the ride. And her hard work was paying off. What's unique about gravel racing is that it's open to everyone to compete, from beginners to elite racers. Pretty quickly, she began to compete at the biggest races in the country, where she immediately stood out because she was winning, coming in well above her competition, both male and female. Many considered Mo to be a prodigy when it came to cycling, prompting sponsors to take notice. Here's Mo being interviewed at the pre-ride show, ahead of a race in Oklahoma. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I've never had coffee in a plastic cup. <laughs> I don't but think I have either. <laughs> like, it's delicious. <laughs> I think coffee in any, any vessel is, is pretty good. <laughs> so you've got a really big season coming up. Yeah. Okay, so talk a little bit about that. Like, what do you got, uh, what do you got on the deck? like a lot. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to like wrap it up in a few sentences. Definitely, I mean, the whole lifetime series, the Grand Prix is a huge target for me. I would be doing most of those um, races anyways, but to tie them all together, I think is, is gonna be really exciting and a fun way for everyone to follow along. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, I like the, the mixture of mountain and gravel is really exciting for me too. I love, because I love both and it's been hard for me to, to categorize myself as one or the other, sort of. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited for that. And then um, got a couple, just like, you know, a lot of the other big gravel events, BWR, Rule of Three, Gravel Locos, some stuff in Vermont, Vermont Overland, Rooted. I might Holy do... Holy shit! I'm thinking about trying to do a little bit more mountain biking, too. I might do, like, mountain bike nationals. We'll see. I think that is not on a big gravel weekend, so... It is hard to do it all, because there is quite a bit of overlap, but, um, yeah. Well, if you're in it, you might as well be in it to win it, right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Why not? <laughs> Going all in. In an interview with Velo, Mo would share what motivated her. She would say, quote, My goal is to only show up as prepared as I can be and give my best effort on any given day. And I know I can be proud of myself if I'm able to do that. And it's with this winning mindset that Mo, in May of 2022, traveled to Texas to attend the 157-mile Gravel Locos race, which was scheduled for May 20th. She'd flown in from San Francisco, where she lived, on the 10th, with plans to stay with her friend, Caitlin Cash. Because Austin was a great place for cyclists to not only ride, but to play. The area had a huge, tight-knit bike racing community, which Mo had become a part of. So on the 10th, Mo flies in, she settles in with Caitlin, and the next day, she would send Caitlin a text saying she had made plans for that evening to go swimming with Colin, a cycling friend. At 5.55, Caitlin, who was out on her own, received a ping on her phone, an alert from her security app, which let her know that Mo had used the special code that she'd given her to lock and unlock the front door at her place. And at 5.55, the alert had let Caitlin know that Mo had left her apartment. Then, a few hours later, Caitlin was still out and she would receive another ping. Again, it was from Mo's special code. And according to the app, she'd used it to unlock the door at 8.36. A little more than an hour later, Caitlin would return home at 9.54. But as she gets to the front door, she's surprised to find it unlocked. Her place is like a garage apartment behind a house, so it's a small space, and as she walks through the door, in the entryway, she has a bird's eye view of the bathroom down the hall, and she takes in a weird sight. The bathroom door is open, and she sees Mo's legs lying on the bathroom floor, and she calls out, hello, to Mo. Well, at the same time, she's walking toward the bathroom, considering the circumstances that would lead her friend to be lying in that position on the bathroom floor. The thought goes through her mind that maybe Mo had gone for a hardcore bike ride earlier and that now she was stretching out. But as she gets closer to the bathroom, she's not seeing Mo's legs move. And just a few seconds later, she's at the bathroom door and is stunned, trying to process what she's seeing. Her friend, Mo, lying on the bathroom floor, blood everywhere. Caitlin immediately calls 911. She's in shock as she tells the operator that she doesn't know what's happened to her friend. Her tears and emotions threaten to paralyze her. She's afraid. As she explains that Mo is lying in a pool of blood and she has no idea where her injuries are from or how she sustained them. The 911 operator is calm and asks if she's breathing. She isn't. And he tells her calmly and reassuringly, she needs to begin CPR on her friend. She's the only one who can do this right now. That first aid is on the way, but Mo needs her help right now. So Caitlin sets aside her fear and panic 
and performs CPR, over 80 chest compressions. She continues even as she tells the operator that Mo's brain was leaking. Here's Caitlin describing that night. I fought for Mo with everything I had that night. From the moment that I got home and started doing chest compressions, which was the longest 10 minutes of my entire life, I remember feeling so relieved when the police arrived, that help was finally there. People who really knew what they were doing and who could help me care for her. When paramedics took over, Caitlin went downstairs. She had no idea that Mo had actually been dead before she'd even arrived home, that she was beyond saving. I fought for her afterwards when I was pulled from my home by police and taken downstairs. I initially refused to go to the police station that night because I didn't want her to be alone. In one of the body cam videos, I say something along the lines of, I can't leave her. I'm the only one she has here. I couldn't understand why they weren't bringing her downstairs to the ambulance so that they could rush her to the hospital. I asked one of the officers why they weren't bringing her down. And that's when he told me that she unfortunately didn't make it. That was the first moment that night when I realized that there was no coming back from this. I think I had just assumed that as soon as she was taken to a hospital, that she was going to be okay. It never actually crossed my mind in the chaos of that night that she wouldn't be alive, that she would die, that she was already dead when I arrived home. At the scene, it was determined that Mo had been shot three times, twice in the head and once directly in the heart. Spent shell casings were found on the floor, but there was no gun, and Mo had no defensive wounds. Caitlin would tell police that she noticed that Mo's expensive bike was missing. Investigators wondered, had Mo come home and interrupted a robbery in progress? But as they searched the apartment, nothing else was stolen. Police would begin canvassing the neighborhood, and within 68 feet from Caitlin's residence, they would find Mo's bike concealed in a thick cluster of bamboo, which didn't track with a robbery gone wrong. Pretty quickly, investigators were able to get a break. Going through security footage from nearby homes, police were able to see a black Jeep circling around Caitlin's home. Now, the SUV had a very distinctive bike rack and also a roof rack, and there was chrome around the windows but they weren't able to get a clear view of the license plate or see who was driving the vehicle. They would also see the black SUV again a minute after Mo punches in that security code to Caitlin's door at 8.37 p.m. This black SUV would come to a complete stop in front of Caitlin's home. They need to find out who this Jeep belongs to. And then... Audio obtained from a camera next door provides investigators what they believe is a time of death. A word of caution here. Please take care. The audio is of Mo screaming at 9.15, followed by two gunshots. There's a six-second pause, and then a third gunshot. Listening to this audio, coupled with Mo's injuries, investigators were convinced that Mo's murder was extremely personal. Their working theory was that the killer had shot Mo twice in the head. Then, after she fell to the floor and was lying on her back, 
They had stood over her during that six-second pause, and then fired another bullet directly into her heart. This was a cold-blooded assassination. Whoever did this wanted to make sure that Mo was dead. After Caitlin had found out that her dear friend had been murdered, she went down to the police station to be interviewed. I was questioned for almost three hours that night. They finally let me wash the blood off my hands in the police station bathroom. And I'll never forget that moment in the bathroom, watching the sink turn red and wanting to put it back on my hands because it was the only thing I had left of her. Caitlin would share that Mo had gone out with a guy named Colin Strickland, a well-known professional cyclist in the area. The next morning, they were pulling into Colin's residence. The first thing they notice in Colin's driveway is a black SUV that matches the description they have on the video collected from Caitlin's neighbor's security footage, complete with the distinctive bike rack, roof rack, and chrome windows. By now, investigators know that Colin Strickland is a celebrated cyclist, that he was 35, 10 years older than Mo, and that he was potentially the last person to see Mo alive, which meant he was definitely a person of interest. Colin was actually out working in his garage when the detective went up to him. He introduces himself and asks if he knows Anna Wilson. Colin looks at him and says no, which was a huge red flag to the detective. Who knows, Colin went out with Mo the night before. He's wondering why is Colin acting like he doesn't even know who she is. Colin, though, quickly keys into the last name Wilson, realizes that he's talking about the woman he knows as Mariah or Mo Wilson. And this is when he's told that Mo was found murdered the night before. According to the detective, Colin appeared truly shocked. He did share with investigators that he had picked up Mariah on his BMW motorcycle, that they went swimming at a popular pool, then got a bite to eat, and then he drove her back to Caitlin's. He said that Mo hopped off the bike, and then he drove off, that he didn't go inside Caitlin's apartment. After he dropped off Mo, he just went straight home. The detective wasn't convinced of his story. If he was driving the BMW motorcycle, as he said, then why was the SUV that matched the vehicle description of the suspicious vehicle that had been around Caitlin's home before Mo's murder in his driveway? The detective asks Colin to come down to the station to give a formal statement. Colin agrees, but he does bring his attorney. During this interview, he would try to explain his complicated relationships, both with his long-term girlfriend, Caitlin, and his brief romance with Mo Wilson that was now just a friendship, according to Colin. He would explain that he lived with his girlfriend, Caitlin Armstrong. He would describe their relationship as tumultuous at times, but also extremely comfortable and loving. How they'd been together on and off for about two and a half years. He said at one time, he had a week-long romance in October of 2021 with Mo. This was during a brief split with Caitlin. Apparently, Colin had met Mo at a gravel race in Idaho, and there was an instant attraction. As a seasoned cycling veteran, he could see Mo's incredible potential. He was drawn to her passion for the sport that they shared, her grit and determination to be a champion. After the race in Idaho, Colin and Mo would continue talking, and five days later, she would come up to Austin. Colin would say he had no idea that she was coming to town, but when she did, they met up, which was during the time that he and Caitlin had broken up temporarily. 
So it was during this time that he became romantically involved with Mo for her week-long visit. The detective noticed that there was definitely a distinct way in which Colin spoke of Mo as opposed to how he spoke about Caitlin. He appeared to really respect Mo as an equal in cycling, whereas Caitlin, he considered an amateur cyclist. And even though he was saying that he and Mo were just friends, now it was clear he was captivated by her. He would describe her as the best female cyclist in the United States, possibly the world. When it came to Caitlin, he would describe her as a participant at gravel racing events, and her inability to keep up with him as an equal had caused tension in their relationship. He made it clear to Caitlin that he didn't want her to try to ride with him during these races because she just held him back. And even when they went on training rides, she would insist on coming along, but she just couldn't keep up and he would get annoyed because he'd have to wait for her, which again, slowed him down. But it wasn't the same with Mo. Not only could she keep up, but she had the potential to outpace him. But again, he made sure to say they were just friends now. Colin's brief romance with Mo had caused some serious tension in his relationship with Caitlin. When she'd been in town for that week during their breakup, Colin and Mo had showed up together at a racing course a local hotspot for cyclists in Austin. And people were surprised, because it was well known in the cycling circles of Austin that Colin was in a long-term relationship with Caitlin, that they'd been together for years, and she was a cyclist too, and went to these events with him. Colin would explain to police that he had a complicated relationship with Caitlin, who, in addition to being a yoga instructor, dabbled in finance, real estate, and she was a partner in a business venture they'd started together, restoring vintage trailers. And the other thing was that they lived together. Even during their brief breakup, when Colin had that week-long romance with Mo, and then got back together with Caitlin. At some point in this love triangle, Mo would get an unnerving call from Caitlin, essentially telling her to stay away, that Colin was her man. And all the while, Colin continued to text and talk to Mo, but he'd been made aware of Caitlin's phone call to her. And so he decided to change Mo's name in his contact list to Christine Wall. In January 2022, four months before Mariah's murder, Colin and Caitlin would drive together to a race in Arkansas, where Colin and Mariah were both competing. Mariah won that event. Later, all three, Colin, Caitlin, and Mariah, would attend a networking event, a dinner, and it was awkward. Afterwards, Mo would send Colin a text saying, quote, This weekend was weird. If you just want to be friends, seems to be the case, then that's cool. But I'd like to talk about it, because honestly, my mind has been going in circles, and I don't know what to think. Colin would respond to Mo's text the following day, saying, quote, Hey Mo, I feel shitty for putting you in a position where you don't feel comfortable. Caitlin came along to go to a meeting. In hindsight, this was not a good idea. Based on this conversation, it appears that Mo believed she was still in a romantic relationship with Colin, even though his relationship with Caitlin seems to be unclear to her. However, in Caitlin's mind, he was her man. According to friends of both Colin and Caitlin, they were never really sure what was up with the couple. Sometimes Colin would refer to Caitlin as his roommate and business partner, other times his girlfriend, which was confusing. They were like, are they a couple? Are they not a couple? And the thing was, Colin would say he hadn't ever really intended to live with Caitlin, that he'd invited her to stay at his home after her place had been damaged in a storm. 
but it was only meant to be temporary. But as things go, it became a permanent situation, at least in Caitlin's mind. During Colin's police interview, he would describe his day before and after Moe's murder. That morning, he went for a three-hour bike ride with Caitlin and a friend. Later, he would get a text from Moe, saying she was in town, and sending him a photograph of herself on her bike. The two made plans to meet up that night. Colin would reveal to detectives that he'd lied to Caitlin about where he was going, because he didn't want her to get angry. He would justify withholding his plans with Mo that night because he felt that he was entitled to have a friendship with Mo and that Caitlin's jealousy was misplaced. So this interview with Colin is more than six hours. And as they're talking, other investigators are tracking down video surveillance to corroborate his story. And video surveillance would confirm that he drove directly home after he dropped off Mo at her friend's house, which meant he could not have been the one to pull the trigger. On his way home, he would text Caitlin saying, quote, Hey, are you out? I went to drop some flowers for Allison at her son's house up north, and my phone died. Heading home, unless you have another food suggestion. Two aha moments would come out of that interview. The first was when Colin told the detective that the black SUV that they saw in his driveway belonged to Caitlin, and that she was the only one who drove it. The second piece of information that would change the trajectory of the investigation was when Colin said that he'd recently purchased two guns, one for himself and another one for Caitlin. According to Colin, it was his idea to buy the guns for protection because she'd been stressed after allegedly being the victim of a road rage incident. This information was enough to get a search warrant that day for Colin and Caitlin's home where they would recover the two guns, Caitlin's gun, a 9mm Sig Sauer would match the shell casings found at the murder scene. Investigators needed to speak with Caitlin Armstrong immediately. Apparently, when they looked her up in their system, they saw that she had a misdemeanor theft warrant for allegedly getting Botox injections at a spa in 2018 and then left without paying. So on that same day that they questioned Colin and searched their home for those guns, they arrested Caitlin on that outstanding warrant. She would be brought into an interrogation room, but not long after, the detective that had begun talking to her would be called out of the office. Apparently, there was some incorrect information on that warrant, and so they reiterated to Caitlin that she could leave at any time. But Caitlin wouldn't leave right away. Her demeanor throughout the interview was extremely odd. For one thing, she didn't move at all. And as the detective is asking her questions, Caitlin appeared to stare straight through her. In fact, the only time that Caitlin appeared to show any emotion was when the detective accused her of being jealous of Mo because her boyfriend, Colin, was dating her. Caitlin would turn her head and roll her eyes in an angry manner, saying, quote, I didn't have any idea that he saw or went out with this girl recently. It was also odd that when Caitlin was asked about her Jeep being seen in front of Moe's friend's house the night she was murdered, she wouldn't deny it. She didn't say it was her, but she didn't say it wasn't. If you'll recall, the footage didn't pick up the license plate, and you couldn't see who was driving the vehicle. Ultimately, Caitlin would walk out of that interview, which, since she wasn't under arrest, it was absolutely her right to do so. However, in the days following Moe's murder, two anonymous tips would be called into law enforcement. 
The first tipster was a friend of Caitlin's, who would say that she continued to be threatened by Mariah. And she knew that Colin was still talking with her. And this made her angry, because she believed that her and Colin would be together forever. When Caitlin's friend pushed back and said, well, what if he chooses to be in a long-term committed relationship with someone else? Caitlin was quick to answer, I'll kill her. Caitlin would also tell this friend that she had called Mo the day she was in town staying at her friend's for that cycling race in Austin, telling her that she was Colin's girlfriend and to stay away from her man. Another tipster would tell police that she had been in Arkansas with Caitlin and they were talking about Mo, and she distinctly remembered Caitlin saying she would kill Mo if she got between her and Colin, and at some point in the conversation, she had mentioned something about a gun. Just days after Moe's murder, ballistics would match the gun that Colin said was Caitlin's and the shell casings found at the murder scene. And with the murder warrant in hand, they went to find Caitlin, but she was nowhere to be found. She was gone. In their efforts to track her down, they would find out that the day after Caitlin's interview with police, she'd sold her Jeep for $12,000. U.S. Marshals, would capture video of Caitlin at the Austin airport that same day that she sold her Jeep, wearing a COVID mask and carrying a yoga mat as she boarded a flight to New York, which was where her sister lived. By the time law enforcement was able to piece this together and went to speak with Caitlin's sister in New York, Caitlin had fled the country. She hadn't used her own passport. They had no idea where she'd gone. But back in Austin, Texas, obviously news spread about her murder. And at the race that she'd gone to Austin planning to attend, they held a moment of silence for her. After reading a statement from Mo's family, who somehow were able to offer words of comfort in the wake of their own devastating loss, they would tell the cyclists to race your hearts out because that's what Mo would have wanted. Mo's murder and the international manhunt for Caitlin was making national headlines and Colin would release a brief statement, which was counter to the Love Triangle headlines. Quote, After our brief relationship in the fall of 2021, we were not in a romantic relationship, only a platonic and professional one. It was not my intention to pursue a long auxiliary romantic relationship that would mislead anyone. End quote. But where was Caitlin? U.S. Marshals got a clue after that visit with her sister. They realized that Caitlin had fled to Costa Rica using her sister's passport. Her sister would say that she had no idea how she got it. But Costa Rica made sense. It was a place that would be easy to get lost in because Costa Rica is inundated with American tourists and it's a mecca for yoga and surfing enthusiasts. And remember, Caitlin was carrying that yoga mat and they knew she was into health and fitness and she was trained as a yoga instructor. As it would turn out, Caitlin had left other breadcrumbs. They were able to zero in on her location based on the mobile devices and laptops that had been seized during the search warrant of their house. Caitlin had made a new Gmail account, but she didn't realize that her new internet search history was still connected to her old accounts, leading investigators to the town of Santa Teresa. U.S. Marshals dressed in Hawaiian shirts, posing as tourists, targeted the local beach and yoga businesses in Santa Teresa looking for Caitlin. When they showed a picture of her, 
someone actually recognized her and said they believe she was staying at a local hotel. On June 29th, an agent walked into that hotel and saw a woman sitting in front of her computer in the lobby. If it was Caitlin Armstrong, it was clear she was trying to change her appearance. Her long, reddish blonde hair had been cut and dyed brown, and she wore a bandage that covered her nose. The agent went up to the woman in front of the computer, and he talked to her about getting a room for the night. Apparently, the woman who he was talking to, her name was Ari, and she'd been left in charge of the small hotel by the owner in exchange for a discount on her lodging. Once the agent was certain that he believed he was speaking with Caitlin Armstrong and not a woman named Ari, he demanded to see her passport. And when she refused to produce a document identifying herself, she was immediately arrested. Here's a press conference with the U.S. Marshals announcing the apprehension of Caitlin Armstrong. It was discovered Armstrong used different names, aliases, under the alias of Beth Martin, Liz, and Ari Martin, who she advised to uniform officials at Don John's Hostel in Costa Rica. Armstrong used these names at yoga studios and other lodging since her arrival in Costa Rica on May 18th. Officials involved in the investigation conducted old-fashioned law enforcement techniques, went door-to-door, -door, conducted multiple interviews, going from yoga establishment to other yoga establishments, and also made contact with lodging venues that she had left behind, which then paved the way where Armstrong was detained by authorities at the Don John's Hostel located in Santa Teresa Beach in Costa Rica. Inside a locked box at the hotel, investigators would find a receipt for more than $6,000, which Caitlin had paid for a recent nose job. They would also find her passport and her sister Christine's, after 43 days as a fugitive, Caitlin Armstrong was extradited back to Austin, Texas, where she was formally charged with the murder of Mariah Wilson. She pleaded not guilty. However, Caitlin's time on the run wasn't over yet. Five months later, on October 11th, just three weeks before her trial was scheduled to begin, Caitlin would make another run for it. It's alleged that Caitlin feigned an injury prompting the need for a doctor's appointment outside of the jail. After her visit, when they were outside, she started to run, where Caitlin tried and failed to scale a six-foot fence before she was surrounded in a neighborhood and recaptured. Back in custody, her escape attempt had no impact on the date of her trial, which began on November 1st, 2023. During the trial, it was revealed that on the day of Moe's murder, Caitlin had looked her up on a fitness app at 4.54 p.m., just five minutes after Colin and Moe had exchanged a text message about meeting up that night. The assistant district attorney, Ricky Jones, reveals to the jury that as a result of their shared business, Colin and Caitlin shared an iPad and a phone. Here as a result of their business, they shared an iPad and a laptop. It was connected to Colin's phone. Remember, Colin had texted Caitlin after he dropped off Mo. Basically, he'd been out of touch because he'd brought some flowers to a friend and that his phone had died. One could infer based on that text that Colin had no idea that Caitlin was surveilling his devices. If you'll recall, he'd changed Mo's name in his cell phone so she wouldn't know that he was communicating with her. The prosecutor made sure that the jury knew that Caitlin had been stalking not only her boyfriend's every move, 
but that the real target of her vengeance, jealousy and rage, was Mo. You would learn that at 8.37 p.m., one minute after she opened that door, Kayla Armstrong's Jeep was seen going through that One minute. You'll see that on video. She's waiting until 8.36, 8.37, 8.38, probably a few blocks away. Hey, you hear all that from witnesses. Now, Mo sends her last message out at 9.13 p.m. She sent a text message to a podcast. Jurors openly wept when the 911 call was played of Mo's friend, Caitlin Cash, trying to do everything in her power to revive her friend, who was already dead. She pumped her friend's heart over a hundred times. You heard it on the 911 call for 10 minutes until the first responders got there, not knowing she'd probably been dead for 45 minutes. During Caitlin's trial, it was also revealed for the first time that her DNA had been found on Mo's bike which had been dumped in that thicket of bamboo near the murder scene. And the prosecutor lays out Caitlin's nefarious behavior, which one could associate to a consciousness of guilt. Caitlin Armstrong on a video camera at CarMax in South Austin near their home. She goes to CarMax and she sells her Jeep for $12,000. On that same day, you'll see an Uber receipt. She rides an Uber to Austin Bertram Airport. Caitlin fled to Costa Rica on her sister's passport. She uses fake names, cut and dyed her hair, and got a nose job, presumably to hide her identity. After a two-week trial, the jury deliberated for less than two hours before finding 35-year-old Caitlin Armstrong guilty of the first-degree murder of Anna Mariah, or Mo, Wilson. Before sentencing, the jury would hear victim impact statements from Caitlin and Mo's mother, Karen. I'd asked the detective over and over again the previous night when and how they were going to notify Mo's family. For what felt like an eternity in the next morning, I waited for her mom and dad to call me. Finally, Karen called me, and it was the hardest phone call of my life. She was wailing, screaming. She wasn't speaking words at first. It was raw and guttural. It was the vocalization of grief. Her world had stopped. She was confused and in disbelief. She kept saying over and over again, who would ever want to hurt my baby? Her mom asked me if I thought she had been raped. I told her no. She asked me if I thought it was quick. And I said yes, I thought it was quick, even though I didn't know. At no point in my life did I think I would ever have to tell someone's mother that I thought their daughter's death was quick. Your actions caused that pain. I've watched Karen sink to the floor in her kitchen because she was sobbing so hard and could no longer stand. I've watched her experience her first Mother's Day without her daughter, surrounded by wildflowers and her children's friends. I've watched her put lights and pumpkins on Mo's gravesite. I've watched her ride her bike and pedal harder because that's what Mo would have wanted. I've watched her in the darkest days not be able to get out of bed because she had nothing left. 
I watched her grieve for her daughter, who she will never get to see grow up anymore, get married, skyrocket in her career, inspire others further, have children. I've seen her open her heart to others through this loss and share her vulnerability and deep well of wisdom. I've seen her sit in this courtroom every single day with her head held high and bear witness to what happened to her incredible daughter. I sat with her as she visited my house for the first time and laid on the floor of the bathroom in a fetal position, stroking the ground, sobbing and crying out loud about how much she missed her. She turned onto her back and laid right where Mo had laid and taken her final breath. Here's Mo's mother, Karen. I'm not sure if my words can penetrate your heart, but I'm gonna try. I hate what you did to my beautiful daughter. It was very selfish and cowardly. When you shot Mariah in the heart, you shot me in my heart. You shot Eric and Matt in their hearts. You shot Mariah's cousins and aunts and uncles and all the people who loved her The defense would plead for redemption. Most sentences are not for life without the possibility of parole. The fact that there is an end date to a sentence is an implicit acknowledgement that as a society, we at least see a possibility of redemption. Because growth can't happen without the necessary ingredients of redemption and forgiveness and self-forgiveness. The prosecution would insist on accountability. And I heard what Mr. Kofor said, and, and, and you know what, I may agree a lot with a, a lot of what he said. But one thing that I do want you to, to think about and to factor into here is that accountability, accountability for your actions are just as important as redemption and forgiveness. And I submit to you that without accountability, there cannot be redemption and forgiveness. The jury would sentence Caitlin Armstrong to 90 years in prison. Before I let you go, I wanted to remind you to stay with us for our bonus episode. Here, my co-host Brandon Morgan and I discuss the case in more detail. And if you have a minute, We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening. From Cloud 10, Criminal Mischief is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.